you would open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we're going to be covering uh, verses 1 through 5 this week. It's a joy to be together and to have the freedom and the opportunity and the place to be able to study God's Word together, to sing songs together, to fellowship with one another, to give to God's kingdom, to use uh, how He chooses to use. It's uh, We are blessed in many, many ways. And I don't always read the news uh, because it's so often not good. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ around this world who are meeting in secret today or have met in secret already because they're in earlier time zones than us and they risked various things when they did so and we don't really have that here. And so um, I praise the Lord for uh, the opportunities that he has given us, the protections that he has given us, and uh, this opportunity this morning. So thank you for being here with us. We are uh, continuing on in our series through the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 2. And if you've been uh, with us for any amount of time, you can, uh, you can attest to the fact that Paul gets very serious uh, sometimes. <laughs> and uh, certainly that is the case in the second half of chapter 1. Of Romans, and uh, he has painted a bleak picture uh, for us at that time, and he's talking in those paragraphs mainly about uh, Gentile pagans and the kind of lifestyle um, evidences of sin that show up in that kind of context. And it's been relatively dark, and it's been relatively heavy. And then we transition in chapter two, and he's going to change topics, and it's not going to get a whole lot. Less heavy, perhaps. Uh, but it is a different topic of discussion. And so if you are with me there in, in Romans chapter 2, I want to read for us just verses 1 through 5, and then we will go to prayer. This is God's Word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But... Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and worship you. We worship you with all that we are. We remind ourselves that you alone are God that you are high and lifted up. We worship you, our Creator. You're the sustainer of all things, and so we worship you. And you are our Redeemer. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done in redeeming us, because in these verses or in the chapter before we find ourselves, we realize about ourselves that that uh, that was our plight, that is us apart from Christ. 
And so we praise you that we are not left apart from Christ. That indeed you have sent your Son. That indeed He did obey where we have done these sorts of things. That He went to that cross and bore our penalty in His own body. That we might have forgiveness. That He died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Having lived righteously in our place because we have not. Thank you that we have this redemption in Christ. Father, as we come to your word and we talk about Romans chapter 2 and we think about what it means to be a judge, what it means to be one who looks at others and observes unrighteousness in their lives and recognizes that, and yet we do those same things. Help us this morning to understand your word for us and help us to understand how you have not left us in this place, in this dark chapter. But in Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we have freedom from these things. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us even this morning from your word. Help us to set aside distraction. Help us to be right here, right now, listening to you. And I pray that we would hear from you, from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a student at the Moody Bible Institute, and we studied evangelism, uh, among other things, of course. And one of the things that we talked about in our evangelism classes, in our evangelism practice, was the need to be able to share a personal testimony. Because we can tell our story that is, that is that kind of evidence of what God has done in our lives, and no one can refute our own story. That uh, they may not like it, and they may not even believe it, but they certainly can't refute it because it's our story. And so here we were, college students, sitting around and uh, with uh, pen and paper and, and thinking about our own redemption, our own personal testimony and how God had redeemed us. And so some of us had grown up in Christian homes and many of us had grown up uh, not in Christian homes. And so often what I found was those Christians, those who had grown up here at church, who had heard the gospel preached from early on, who were uh, from believing families and had walked with Christ from early in their lives, that sometimes they would look at us who had grown up in non-Christian homes and maybe had a little bit more of a wild story, and they would think, ah, my story is not really interesting. My conversion, you know, I was six or whatever, and I, you know, I wasn't really into the gangs yet, <laughs> you know, and whatever, and so, I, but, but that, that would be kind of, uh, kind of the, you know, the, the sense that because some of us had a, a longer unbelieving background and had done worse things, that therefore our redemption was uh, clear, was a better story, was going to be more powerful with the guy on the street or whatever. And uh, we would try and encourage them. You were just as lost as we were. Your sin may have looked different, especially as a six-year-old or, or even as someone who came to Christ later, but in a, in a Christian home or whatever. Your sin may have looked different, but your sin was sin. And you were guilty as we were guilty. Whether our being dead in sin was revealed by gross sin or by subtle sin... The fact remains that everyone has earned a guilty verdict from God. 
Chapter 1 closed with a bleak description of the depravity of the Gentile pagan sinner. Chapter 2 transitions to the self-righteous sinner. The self-righteous sinner. Having hit those Gentiles very hard in chapter 1 and exposing their lives and exposing the things they believed and the things that they did, what they were about, Paul shifts in his address here and he begins to, uh, to address Jews. And particularly he's talking to, remember, the Jews in this Roman church. If we step back for a moment from our passage at hand and we think about the, the church at Rome, it consisted of both Gentiles and Jews. Believers in Christ, but from very different backgrounds. And if we remember that uh, for a time the Jews were kicked out of Rome and therefore their, their uh, congregation would have, would have become predominantly or entirely Gentile for a period of time. And then after, that, uh, after the, those Jews returned, they would have found their church was very different, had a different balance than when they left some years before because of being kicked out of Rome. And so you have this uh, possible tension and you've got these two groups And he has spent the first chapter, the second half of the first chapter, addressing that first group of of Gentiles. And the Gentiles, even believing Gentiles, they're well aware of the Gentile world and what it looked like. And so he's he's made that clear. And and the guilt that is found there in every single Gentile because of the the different practices that are mentioned there, from idolatry to uh, sexual immorality to all the things listed in verses 28 through 32 that we just talked about last time. Well, then he turns to the Jews. And he's addressing the Jews because they have a very different background and they have a very different story of their own conversion and what was true about them, things that were different, very different from the, uh, from the Gentiles. And of course, any Jew living in a Gentile context or with Gentiles around, which was nearly everywhere at this time, would have been able to observe the drastic difference between Jewish culture and Gentile culture. And those, the evidence of looking at the Gentile world and the, the promiscuity and the, and the idolatry and all the, the gross things that went on, the, the blatant in-your-face kind of sin that was there, was different in the Jewish context. The Jewish culture was not typified the same way. They didn't, uh, they didn't do the same things, at least not overtly. It was still frowned upon within their own context. And so their culture, their, the Jewish culture tended to be different, very different. And so, of course, if you're a Jew and you're looking at that Gentile uh, context that you're in and you hear the gospel proclaimed, you could say, well, obviously, obviously they need that because because they're terrible people for these 900 reasons. But Jewish context, well, maybe maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. And actually the 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 Jews of the day were if you read other Jewish writings from the time, they had a they felt very secure before God because of their connection with Abraham, because of because of who they were as a nation, because of who they were as a group. And they felt great confidence uh, before God because of the promises that had been made, because of the covenants and those sorts of things. And they could, they could write things in their Jewish literature like, like uh, even if we sin, Jews, even if we Jews sin, we're basically okay before God because we know Him. So we're good to go, right? And so they, they, they were big into corporate security before God because of who they were. But they tended to pass over the personal accountability before God. And so it's that exactly that Paul wants to dig into in our section right here. 
They are indeed self-righteous sinners. And he wants to point out to them in these first couple of verses, God's judgment on sinners. I read again verses 1 and 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's turning to the Jewish community and he's saying, you look at the Gentile world and you see the obvious nature of their sin. And you realize some things about sin. You realize that God judges sinners. And so you look at sin and you pass judgment on that sin. You, you look at the Gentile and you, you can see that he's a sinner and so uh, you pass judgment on him. And so that reveals a very good thing about you, Jewish community. You recognize sin. That's a good thing. More than that, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So not only do they recognize sin for what it is, but they recognize God's judgment upon sin. Also a good thing. But this is all made evident by their judgment of the Gentiles, their judgment of others. And so we may think so far so good. Because they recognize sin and that sin is worthy of judgment. The problem is that the self-righteous judge himself also sins. You see what was there in the second half of verse 1. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So you're sitting in judgment. You recognize sin. You recognize God's judgment upon sin. Okay, so far so good. But... You forget that you yourself, judge, self-righteous judge, you also sin. But he says, you practice the very same things. Well, if you think back to chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, there was some pretty atrocious sinning going on there. There, There's a whole paragraph on on just idolatry. Well, the, the, the Jews of this day weren't really guilty of idolatry in that same way. And the second paragraph was, was, was this overt sexual immorality, sexual perversion. And the Jewish community was not really characterized by that either. But that last paragraph, the paragraph we talked about last week with all of these social sins one against another, these things that characterized the Gentile world, the, the characterized the, the debased mind. Remember all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, and on and on and on. I believe Paul is saying those very things you have in your heart. That those those very things, judge, you look at the world and judge, you look at the Gentiles and you say shame on them and they're guilty and they're deserving of God's wrath and you forget that you have envy in your own heart. You have malice in your own heart, in your own life, greed, tearing other people down, gossip, slander. You forget that that is you. Human sin takes a thousand forms. Last week we noticed that all of them usually have something to do with looking out for number one. And you can see that just by looking around you. You can observe that in your own life. 
But in chapter 1, we looked at the person who did these sorts of things, and then what did they do? They did them, and then they recruited others to join them. They high-fived those who were joining in. They, they encouraged them. They cheered them on in their sin. That was the conclusion of chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, we see a person who does those same things, but then what do they do? They sit in judgment over other people who do, do those sorts of things. We saw that the first was a, a, a clearly a wicked evil. Doing evil and recruiting other people to do the same thing. Well, this is a different kind of wicked evil. Doing evil yourself and then also judging those other people around you for their brand of evil. The result, Paul says in verse 3, is that the judge is also under judgment. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Does God judge on a, on a curve? Does He justly render judgment on, on Gentile sinners, but then come over here to the Jewish community and judge on a curve? Are they exempt because they have the right genealogy? And there was a prevailing notion in Paul's day that indeed He did. He looked on them differently than he did the sinful world. Paul wants to make very clear that they're guilty before God, just like the Gentile sinners. So that raises a question. If you think about Jewish history, you think about the Old Testament, you think about how a Jew of this time might have understood life and might have, might have thought about uh, his people and relating to God. What about all the mercy and grace that God had shown to the Jews over the years? Wasn't that evidence enough that God had a sort of different standard for them? For the Jews over against the Gentiles? He'd revealed himself over and over again. He had shown his mercy when they had broken covenant. He had given them forgiveness. And so, wasn't that evidence that the way things were going was just fine? Well, how about you? Maybe you have seen God be merciful in your own life. Maybe through, even in your unbelief, you've seen Him be merciful. Maybe in continued unrepentant sin, and you've seen God be merciful to you. He has not yet rendered judgment. You can see that your life is blessed, that God's good hand is blessing you in the way God has treated you. Isn't that a sign that you're doing just what God wants you to do if, if you are blessed in such a way? Well, these are the types of questions that Paul moves to answer in verse 4, where he addresses what I've called wasted wealth. Listen to verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? To presume, the ESV translate that as presume, and that's it's not really a strong enough word. It's more like to show contempt for. The King James says despise. Do you despise it? And that's more the tone of the word here. Do you despise the riches of these things? God has poured out abundantly these things. He has given them to you in great, great measure. And, and the Jews of all people could look at the riches of God's mercy towards them. 
And he says, do you despise that? Do you despise the riches of his kindness? Meaning his, his goodness, his gracious atti- attitude towards you? As opposed to his severity towards you? Do you presume, do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? One scholar explains those latter two, forbearance and patience, is this. The expression of God's goodness in his patient withholding of the judgment that is rightfully due the sinner. God had repeatedly and over the centuries shown himself to be merciful and kind and patient with the nation of Israel. And the fact of their continued existence was evidence of God's mercy. Time and again they had done what, what should have resulted in their destruction if it were not for God's mercy toward them. And so, even at this point, there's an application for us. The fact that you and I just got to draw another breath is evidence of God's mercy. Your heart continued beating. We get to be here today together. We get to hear God's word proclaimed. We get to be around people who love us. That is evidence of God's mercy and God's patience towards us. So ask yourself, why has God shown you such patience? He hasn't been forbearing with you. He hasn't been patient with you for no reason. It is patience with a purpose. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness with Israel throughout the Old Testament was for the purpose of leading them to repentance, giving them opportunity, giving them time, giving them encouragement, giving them motivation to repent and come back to Him. God is patient with us on purpose. Have you thought about the fact that He didn't strike you down the first time you sinned? That was patience. And you've sinned how many times since that time? And He still has not struck you down. He still has not judged you. That's evidence of God's patience. On the contrary, not only has God endured sin, which is a great evidence of of patience, the fact that He has not yet rendered judgment, but on top of that, not only has He endured our sin, He took it upon Himself to provide redemption from sin. And that is the joy of this passage. This, this section, these, we're not out of this section yet that's going to be, uh, that's going, going to be making very clear the guilt of all humanity, which by the way is not a very popular topic. And Paul goes on and on and on about it. He wants to make very clear our own culpability before God. I, I know I would rather preach on things that are exciting and joyful all the way through. I would rather preach on only the good news. I really would. And you would rather hear me preach only the good news. And that's not how Paul writes this book. He wants to make very clear exactly the context into which God sends his mercy. So that we will appreciate it. So that we will understand that indeed God's patience, his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 
Paul uses this same kind of language about the the wealth of God's mercy towards us in a couple of other passages. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about His kindness and His mercy and and how great it is that he could call it riches, he could call it wealth, it's it's like a treasure. And it is most clearly summed up, it is most clearly found, not just in His being patient and not having judged you yet, but in His patience in sending His Son to provide redemption from that judgment. That is the greatest evidence of His patience. He says a similar thing in Titus 3 when he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. The wealth, the abundance, the blessing of God's mercy in not having pulled the trigger yet and in having sent His Son to take upon Himself that very guilt that would incur that wrath And that judgment. And that is the clearest exposition, the clearest explanation of God's patience. The gospel is where the goodness and loving kindness of God is made most evident. And in Christ Jesus are shown the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. And so the application here for us is, having heard about this wealth, having heard the gospel over and over again, having heard about God's abundant mercy and grace towards you, do you presume upon it? Or better, do you despise it? If you continue on hearing the gospel, but not believing it, if you continue on hearing about God's grace and mercy towards you, and not making it your own, You are despising, despising the very thing that is meant to lead you to repentance. You are showing contempt for God and showing contempt for His gospel. And if that's you, rather than treasuring up that wealth, I love that he uses the word treasure, wealth, He's talking about the the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. That's a good thing, and there's lots of it. And it's riches and it's wealth. And what should you do? You should treasure it up. And and what are you treasuring up? When you reject the gospel, when you reject his patience and mercy, when you don't look to it, what are you treasuring up? Wrath for yourself. Treasuring up wrath for yourself. Listen to verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is making a plea, and I am making a plea, that our sin has been made abundantly clear in this chapter and in the one before it. And God's patience and His mercy toward us in the fact that He has not struck us down yet, and in the fact that He sent His Son, the greatest expression of His patience and mercy toward us is a plea to believe in that. And if if you're one of those who, who doesn't believe in that, you need to trust in Christ. You need to turn away from the uh, everything that you have thought and believed to be true that has led you away from Him and turn to Him and turn to this patience and this mercy 
that has been poured out. And you will have salvation. You will have mercy. And that wrath that has been stored up, that you have stored up by your ongoing unbelief to this time, by your having rejected His patience and His mercy towards you, that instead of treasuring that patience and mercy, instead you have treasured up for yourself, you have created a storehouse of God's wrath, what you will find is that that storehouse of wrath for your sin has been placed upon Christ, has been placed upon Jesus Himself. And so this is the good news of this passage, is that though the the, the reality for us was a bleak one, a dark one, for everyone who is in Christ, that wrath that we had stored up, that sin that we had committed, that, that caused us to deserve such judgment from God, when we trust in Christ, we find that that wrath was placed upon Jesus. And He bore God's wrath in our place. He took it upon Himself. That He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. And you will find that that wrath is fully spent in Christ. So much so that that for those who are in Christ, God has no more wrath. He only has love for them. He only has acceptance for them because of what Christ has done. And so we find peace where there was no peace. We find joy where there was no joy. We find freedom and forgiveness from that wrath of God where we bore that guilt before and, and we were in God's crosshairs, as it were, children of wrath. And we find that where we have disobeyed, Jesus always obeyed. Always obeyed every will of the Father. Compare that to our lives. We can't even say that about today for us. And Jesus obeyed. He kept the law. He was obedient to His Father. And when we trust in Christ, we find that not only is the wrath of God spent on Christ for us, but we stand before Him righteous as His righteousness is applied to us. And we can stand before God, not as children of wrath anymore, but as children of God, as those who have been forgiven, as those who have joy to look forward to, joy in the present, who have life eternal now and will have resurrection unto life in the end. This is the offer. This is the plea. This is, this is the patience of God shown for us. And so, Christian... This is where we rejoice. When we read about that darkness that is us, perhaps we were the kind who was in chapter 1. Perhaps we are the kind who is found in chapter 2, and that's more of our own heart. That's more of our own background. Yet for us who are in Christ, that guilt has been placed on Jesus. And so we continue reading dark truths about humanity. And we can amen them because we can see them in ourselves and people around us. And we get to rejoice because we have been set free from those things. We no longer bear that penalty. But we are in Christ. Declared to be righteous in Him. And so, my, my encouragement for you, my, my plea if you don't yet know Christ, is that there is no other hope. You will bear the wrath of God yourself apart from Christ. But you don't have to be apart from Christ.
Trust in Him even today. And if I could have the men come up for communion, we're going to celebrate right now that very truth of Jesus having paid that penalty for us, of Him having given His own body for us.